Well, good morning. Give you a welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you. And let me uh, note, if you didn't get a green bag uh, that has information about the church, I encourage you to do that. And, but also, uh, if you'd like to be contacted by the church, um, we have cards. They're in the chairs in front of you, or you can go back to the uh, Welcome Center and you can fill out that information and just leave it um, just out there on the uh, Welcome Desk. And we'll be glad to, to get in touch uh, with you. Now, just a couple of announcements. Um, our pastoral search team has uh, found uh, a candidate that they're going to be uh, presenting uh, to the church, uh, Jeff uh, Birch and his wife, Abby. They're going to be uh, with us in two weeks. Uh, so March the 14th, uh, he will be here preaching. And uh, the way that it works in the Presbyterian system is the congregation that votes to call him. Uh, we, he, we will still have two services at 9 o'clock, and after the 9 o'clock, uh, we will have a congregational meeting, take a recess, have the 11 o'clock worship service, pick back up again, and have another congregational meeting. Each opportunity for those who are here, you'll be able to, to vote, and the decision will be made at, at that time. Now, for those who will be following online, we'll have both 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock services online. We'll also have those meetings online as well. And those who are, uh, cannot be here, who are members of the church, uh, you'll be sent an email uh, that allows you to reply and to vote. So every member will have opportunity to vote on that Sunday. Now, the, the pastoral search team uh, folks are just so thrilled uh, to uh, be calling this particular candidate. When I speak to each one of them, they, their passion just comes out. So I'm asking, giving opportunity for them to do that. And this morning, uh, Lori Moore is going to come and say what it is that she likes uh, about uh, our candidate. of all, I just want to thank you all for giving me the opportunity to kind of share my perspective about um, how, you know, the quality of Christ follower um, that we have in Pastor Jeff. So um, our group of eight um, was just great. We worked so well together. Um, but what was so unique about each of us at that is that we all have different different parts or perspectives that we work with here in the church. Um, <clears throat> I want to go ahead and open this morning with scripture. So um, I chose Lamentations 3, 22 through 25 this morning. And it was so funny because I was having my morning devotion. And guess what the scripture was? Right here. So because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. 
So why I use this scripture is it depicted the challenges and the trials um, that we look to fill the void for a senior pastor. Um, But through the months of preparation and challenges, we are able to see what we believe God has chosen for our next pastor. So personally, I've reviewed my notes and uh, kind of my qualifications and, uh, and in prioritizing who I wanted for a pastor, for Pastor Birch. Um, also, I went through his first and second interviews, um, the second interview being with his wife, Evie. Um, and also his uh, several of his, ser- of his sermons. And that reminded myself of why he is such a gem and such a good fit for LOPC. So first of all, when we were ranking our candidates, we went ahead, each of us individually, chose what we thought would be important for a new pastor, for the senior pastor. Um, So I chose seven different categories. One of them is being evangelical. Secondly, his relational um, appearance, his personal development and growth, um, kind of his biblical knowledge, his dynamic appearance, and his desire for community development, and his family's involvement. And guess what? Every one of those qualities, he was like at the top or next to the very top. He was very strong and powerful for all these qualities. Also, um, as I looked at his interviews, um, it just really reminded me of why there are certain characteristics that just jumped out. Um, My heart started beating like really fast when I learned that uh, he came to Christ um, through Young Life when he was a senior in high school. And that was the age that I came to know Christ, um, probably around 18. And But he went a step further. He actually jumped right in there and was on staff for Young Life for four to five years. Then also, another thing that he did or um, in his past is he was very instrumental in planning churches. And if anybody knows the way missions are going now, I took a course called Perspectives. And that is, you know, they they have it in schools and in seminaries. And um, that, uh, the way, the direction that missions are going is that they want to plant churches because they feel that is the, the best way to get the word of Jesus Christ out in a very, um, a very good way. Anyway, and then um, one thing that I thought was so cool is that uh, he loves to reach his neighbors. His neighbors are us, are us, the surrounding community, and also um, his actual neighbors. He would really want to reach out to those neighbors that are around um, and get to know them. So I just see his love for people. Um, so I see this relational part. I see the, evangel- um, the evangelical outreach. And then his family involvement. 
Evie really, um, her heart really uh, is excited. She is really um, wants to get into the hospitality aspect. Um, also, she has a love for young women, um, new marrieds and children, um, women with small children. Um, and lastly, I want to just kind of show you about his sermons um, and things that I kind of reviewed yesterday. And I see the depth. So he reflects his own, you know, personal development, also his dynamic capabilities. And that caused me to want to learn and hear more about what he had to say about the great God that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. So overall, I just cannot thank, thank God enough for his mercy, um, that they are new every morning. And just thank the Lord for allowing my life to be touched by, incredible, by an incredible and amazing Christ follower and servant, Pastor Jeff Birch. Thank you, uh, Lori. One thing I want to note is we are preparing, well, actually, Jeff and Evie, his wife, have already prepared about an, a four-minute uh, video that they've made for the congregation. It'll be coming out sometime this week. Uh, it'll, it'll go out to you uh, by email. Uh, secondly, we're going to be, or Ken Johnson is making some short videos of each search team member saying something like what Lori has done, what, why they what it is that they have seen uh, in our candidate, and we'll be sending those out to you as well. So that the goal is that by in two weeks, you'll be here from March the 14th, you'll, you'll have a good idea uh, of who he is as he's coming, and we encourage you as well to, can, if you type in his name, Jeff Birch, with an I, uh, if you type in his, his former church, Spruce Creek Presbyterian, you'll find sermons as, as well of him, as well as devotions, and we encourage you uh, to be uh, to looking those things up. We think that you will be encouraged. Now let's prepare our hearts for worship.
You all know this uh, great passage from Romans 8. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we do give you praise, our God, for this great love that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. We come now in his name through the work that he has accomplished for us to offer our own love before you. And we pray for the anointing and blessing of your spirit so that what we lift up before you will be honoring to you and give you delight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together of the deep, deep love of Jesus. of faith this morning. We'll be reciting from the Nicene Creed. Let's confess our faith together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and of all things visible and invisible, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father in heaven, we do give you praise, and we do seek this very morning to honor, to hallow your name. We pray for the work of that, your spirit in us, so that we may honor you, hallow your name in our worship here this morning, that we may do it as well as we go forth in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever you would have us to be, that we would honor before this world your name, that we would serve well your kingdom, that we would do your will here upon this earth as it is in heaven. We pray for your provisions for us this day of our, the bread that we need to provide for our needs for our bodies, for our minds, and for our souls, so that all the more that we may love you with all our heart and, and mind and strength. We pray that you would forgive our debts, which are many as we forgive the debtor, our debtors, which are those which are few, we pray that you would give us your heart to make whatever sacrifice is necessary to forgive the perceived offenses of others. We pray that we not be led into temptation, that you understand, that you know our weaknesses and our frailties. We pray for the forgiveness of our hidden sins. We pray that you would hold us back from presumptuous sins Deliver us from the evil one who is ever seeking to lead us astray. We make this prayer acknowledging to you belongs the kingdom and the power 
and acknowledging that we live, we exist, so that we might give you glory forever. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. you to turn with me either in your Bibles to Psalm 19, or again you will find the uh, text also in your church bulletin. We're coming to a psalm this morning that uh, C.S. Lewis 
took to be not only the, the greatest poem in the Psalter, but he says one of the greatest lyrics in the world. But it was also a psalm that presented to Lewis a, a feeling that this psalmist had that he found, he says, utterly bewildering. We'll look a little bit more about why he found that bewildering a little bit later in our message. Let's look at the psalm. It's broken into three stanzas. The first stanza, which takes us verses 1 through 6, celebrates what is called natural revelation. This is how God reveals himself through nature. and Specifically, David, our psalmist, is going to look at the sun and the sky. And the second stanza, it's taking a seven, verse 7 through verse 11, celebrates what is called special revelation. That's the written scriptures given us directly by the Lord. Then the third stanza is a prayer of response. So let's begin with the first stanza. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the heavens declare the glory of God. That's, that's the theme of their stanza. David is saying, look up at the sky. It's proclaiming to us the glory of God, the creator. Now, the Hebrew term that he uses for God is El, E-L. It's the, the oldest, it's kind of the most common term used in the Hebrew language for, just, for God, the creator in general, that, that anyone, any person of any nation throughout the earth, they should be able to look up at the sky and see that there is being displayed that we have a God who is our creator. The sun, the moon, the stars, they're just pouring out speech, testifying that there is a God, and this is a glorious God. Now, the first line of verse 4 through verse 6 develops this theme with a more focused attention on the sun. The night sky is the tent for the sun. And the sun comes out at dawn in splendor, like a bridegroom who's emerging out of his tent on his wedding day, and then with great vitality is, is coursing across the sky with, with joy, you know, and it is declaring, you know, look, look at my great maker. Okay. Now, it's the very last line, though, that makes a, a subtle shift. It's that line there of the, of the heat. Nothing is hidden from its heat. So far, we have been spectators. We're watching a glorious display. It's like the 4th of July, and we're going, and we're watching the fireworks. Okay? And so we're watching the sun, the sun. But the last line reminds us that in a sense, 
What's happening is the sun is also looking down on us. And none of us can escape its penetrating rays of heat. So just kind of hold that thought, and let's go to the second stanza in verses 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are righteous, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. All right, so we're moving from natural revelation to special revelation. And with that transition, there comes a little bit of a little bit of a change in the themes and the concepts. And we actually can see it in the ways that God is addressed. That natural revelation of uh, verse 1, we have God who is in Hebrew called El, that E-L. And that is a God that ought to be recognized, acknowledged by every person in every nation. Now in our second stanza, we have a special revelation here. We have Yahweh. It's translated here as Lord. Let me just give a, a very quick lesson on the names that are used for God in most Bible translations. When you see the word Lord, and you'll note how it is that the, you have capital letters are in small print, but they're all capital letters. That is denoting the Hebrew term Yahweh, or those that grew up on the King James Version, you're thinking of Jehovah. Okay. This is the name when, when Moses asked God, well, who am I to tell the people who's sending me? And he said, I am who I am. That's Yahweh, that's Jehovah. And when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, that's with lowercase letters. And now it, it's referring to a name in the Old Testament called Adonai. And that's a word for God, but it also can be used for a human being. In fact, uh, there's a psalm in Psalm 110, uh, in which it's written by David. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. It's Yahweh said to my master, or my Lord. So Lord Yahweh is the name that he is known by his covenant people. And this covenant is made with the law that is with the written word of God. All right, so the psalmist David, he's moved now to the law, the written word of God given as special revelation. Now he's speaking by, by when he thinks of the law, it's all of this, the scriptures that he has. Okay, So I'll be making references to the scriptures now. He, he uses several synonyms. What does he use? Well, he's got law, He's got testimony, precepts, commandment, and rules. Now, note in verse 9, there's a bit of a change there. He uses the term fear. So there seems to be an exception. Well, think of it this way. Think of that term as, as a synonym for the scriptures, but he puts it down because it's depicting the attitude of the scriptures toward God. They are all filled with a due reverence for God. Okay, 
Now let's then look at the attributes of these scriptures. What are we told? They're perfect. They are sure. They are right. They are pure. They are clean and true. They're trustworthy because they are true. They are complete in that they give all the knowledge that we need to have of God, of his ways, and what he requires of us. They are pure and clean. They, they are good. They're not tainted with falsehood or, or with sin. And they present the right understanding and the right attitude toward God. Okay. Now, the next thing we're going to note here is what the results of these qualities uh, provide. What do they do? They, they revive the soul. They make wise the simple. They rejoice the heart and enlighten the eyes. They uplift the reader's spirit as they give insight into the ways of the Lord. And indeed, they lead the reader to, to rejoice in the Lord. They give the reader confidence as, as the reader grows in, in knowledge and wisdom. They give the reader a sense of stability and security as they grow in trust of the Lord. And this confidence and this security comes from understanding, as it says here, that the scriptures endure forever. They're not going to change with the changing times and the culture. Furthermore, they're righteous they do not spring from sinful. They do not spring from false thinking. They can be relied upon to lead one along the right path. Now, the remainder of this stanza concludes uh, declaring the value of Scripture. Look with me in verses 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So the qualities of the scriptures and the results that they produce for the reader, this gives them a value, well, greater than the finest wealth. It makes them more satisfying than the sweetest taste. But we have to also note here that their value lies in the reader taking the due lesson from them and in keeping them. So that the value of God's word lies not in becoming exceptionally good at Bible trivia, nor in becoming known as, a, as an authority or an expert in the scriptures. It lies in having a life that is molded by those scriptures, a life that is molded into a God-fearing and righteous life. And that great reward is the reward of being approved by God. Now the next stanza demonstrates, this is our final stanza, beginning in verse 12, and it will demonstrate the principle that the right study of God will inevitably lead to the study of one's own heart. So who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent 
of great transgression. So we have David here. He's the one who's written a psalm. He's responding to what he see, how he sees God in nature, and especially to what he learns of God in Scripture, causes him to look at his own heart, and he has to acknowledge his sinful condition, a sinful condition that is so deep, he can't even see all of them. Much of them is even hidden. So he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. And what he's doing here is he's calling upon God for mercy, for the forgiveness of sin that he cannot see, and therefore he cannot confess them. And he understands further, though, that he is very much guilty of sin that he can see. And in particular, it is the sin of pride. And so he calls upon God, and if God is merciful, if he will forgive that unseen sin, if he will hold David back from that besetting sin of pride, then he can trust that he shall be kept from committing even greater sin. And so a right reading of Scripture about God, it will lead to reflection about oneself. And what happens Again, with this revelation, what's happening is here. We can't read the scriptures without having a sense that God turns the scriptures around and he examines us. That's the same thing that was happening in natural revelation. We call that line about the sun, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun is not merely an, an object to be watched. It's also an object that shines down back on us, even to the point of making us feel uncomfortable. We cannot observe the glory of God in nature without feeling, if we're watching this correctly, feeling that God is watching us. We cannot delve and study God in Scripture without feeling that he is studying us. The psalm then closes with a dedication to the Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the prayer of every pastor as he gets up to pray. Well, let's summarize this psalm. We're going to follow the arc of the psalm. We're observing the, the glory of God, the creator, Through natural revelation, we're looking up there at the heavens. It continues to the special revelation of God's word that reveals him as Lord. He is the I am of Israel. There David is led to see the the holiness of God uh, through the special qualities of these scriptures. Then leads him to examine his own heart, to seek God's forgiveness and protection. And then finally he closes by dedicating the psalm to the Lord, whom he acknowledges to be his rock, his fortress, his redeemer, his savior from his sin. So let's think now about this psalm, what what we should be gaining from this. David has been modeling for us the quality and the utility of both natural and special revelation. Through him, we're seeing that natural revelation leads us, again, to to marveling over the glory of God. 
which then leads to a feeling of, of humbleness. I mean, you, you've had this experience. You, you can't look at a clear night sky without a feeling of the majesty of God. And you, you cannot observe the, the splendor of the sun when it, when it finally comes out, particularly after days of, of rain and, and clouds, without feeling the glory of God. And you cannot feel the majesty and the glory without being aware of of how small we are. Nature displays the majesty and glory of God, which just naturally leads to to humbleness. Now, we got a special revelation, God's revealed word. It leads us to marveling over God's holiness, over his perfection which then causes us to to do self-examination, which leads us to humility. Scripture takes us into the knowledge of God, takes us deep in there, and of his will. And we learn through Scripture the, the qualities of God's holiness, and in consequence, the holiness that is required of us. And so we cannot then but be led into examination of our own hearts, And when we're led into that kind of an examination, we can't fail to see where we're lacking. And so we're led to humility. Now, do you you catch the distinction I'm making here? It's a subtle one of, of humbleness and humility. The humbleness comes from that natural revelation. The humility from special revelation. Think of it this way. You, most of you have done this already. You, you've gone to a, you've climbed to a mountaintop. You're looking out over the great expanse of below you and above you. I mean, now let me ask: When you do that, do you feel big? Well, no. You feel your smallness. You feel your your humbleness. Now, on the other hand, you, you open your Bible. You're attentively reading the scriptures. It's, it's speaking to you of the holiness, the righteousness of God. It's instructing you in the, the righteous path you're to follow. When you read that, do you feel righteous? No, you, you probably, what you feel are your failings. You feel humility. And that's the way it is with true revelation, whether it be a, a natural revelation or special revelation. It leads to the glory of God being magnified and the frailty of man being recognized. God increases, man decreases. But here's the irony. It's in that very process, that's what produces true delight. I mean, this has happened to you. Far from leading to discouragement, it leads to joy. Now, how does it do that? Let's go back to that mountaintop. You're up there, you feel the the bigness and the wonder of nature. You're feeling your your smallness. Well, how does it cause you to react? Your face lights up with what? With joy. And whether you're doing it silently or whether you're just saying it out loud, you cannot help but exalt your God. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You feel the glory of God. And even though it it makes you, you feel small, 
you cannot help but what? To, to feel glorious yourself because what's happening? You're being caught up in this glorious spectacle. Humbleness that springs from the grandeur of God does not lead one to feeling oppressed, or to put it in our modern terms, does not lead us to low self-esteem. It leads us to being caught up in the joy of glory. Okay. Now let's move this thought over to special revelation. Okay. So as noted, we're, we're reading about the holiness of God, what God expects of us, We're convicted of our sin and our frailty. We're experiencing humility. Now, one would think that this leads us to discouragement, even maybe to despair, and it is possible it can do that. But if we read it rightly, there should be two other reactions, and David displays both of them. He displays it, first of all, in the second stanza in which he delights in the qualities of Scripture. Now, I'd mentioned at the beginning of the sermon how Lewis was was baffled, bewildered by this song. And here's what, what puzzled him so much. It was this idea of taking delight in rules. Now, I've been using the term Scripture to refer to what David calls, remember, the law, precepts, testimony, commandments, and and rules. Now, Lewis is right in thinking that what David has in mind, he's thinking of the commandments of the Lord. And Lewis could understand, okay, you can respect. You can respect the law with all of these commandments. But how does one delight in them? Especially when it means you got to follow them, and it means you have to give up desires that you have. Well, as usual, Lewis, he goes deeper into the matter. And the best way I can illustrate what he uh, finds in this is to go back to that mountaintop. Let's go back up there. What is it that you are delighting in? It's not simply that you see bigness. What is it? You see beauty. The the, the grand strokes of, of color and, and texture and design just all fit so well together. It's not that it's merely marvelous to look at, but you have a sense of satisfaction. This is right. This is just the way it ought to be. They are harmonious with one another. It's a good feeling of satisfaction. Well, so it is with God's law. When understood rightly, the commandments, the system of laws, they have a right balance. They present the right perspective of what is holy, what is good. Maybe something similar to what you would have had. You probably have at some point in life you've been pondering this this perplexing problem. You just cannot figure out a solution, what you're going to do, whether it's just, just figuring out a, a mathematical problem or it's just you, you got a real problem in, in your life you're struggling with, and you take it to someone else, and they give an answer that is just, I mean, it startles you. It startles you for, for its clarity, for how well it just solves the problem. 
It's, it's not just that, boy, this, this helps me out. But the idea itself, it's, it's brilliant. The very answer itself is a delight in itself. And that's what David is recognizing about the law. The law itself gives him delight, just pondering over the various precepts and the rules, how well they fit together, how right they are. But then David also has a second reaction. And this is what right reading should lead to. He feels, he feels conviction. Okay. The right reading of Scripture, it lifts up our eyes to the holiness of God and again, inwardly to our own sin. It causes us to, to marvel at the, at the rightness of God's laws. It leads us then to a humble examination of where we fall short. But then what the reaction should do, it should lead us in the way that it led David. He recognizes his sinful state, and then it led him to what? It led him to God. It led him to pray to the Lord for mercy, for intervention. And that is what should happen to you. You read God's word. You marvel marvel over its rightness. You have to attest that it is right. You then feel the conviction for your failings. The next step is then to turn to the Lord. Turn to him for mercy. Turn to him for help. But here is the great advantage that you have over David. David did not know Jesus. David did not know the son of David. He did not know the atonement that would be made on the cross. Now, he knew God's love, but he did not know the kind of love by which God would send his son to die for him. He knew God to be merciful, but not such a wondrous mercy shown in God giving his son for sinners. You do, if you know Jesus. You know, I think about David. What could David have written if he had had our advantages? Let's go back to natural revelation. He looks through the sky with just his naked eye. That's all he's got. He could not look at the cosmos through a telescope circling the earth. Maybe he could get up to the mountaintop, but he could not fly in a plane high up there in the sky and look down. He knew but a fraction of what you know about the universe and the earth. But more to the point, more to the point is this, his scripture consisted chiefly of the law. He did not have the gospels. He did not have the New Testament letters that that taught about Jesus and what Jesus has done. He did not have the New Testament letters that revealed Jesus in his own law. He didn't have that. How much more would David have delighted in God's word? How much more humble would he have felt? How much more in awe would he have been of the majesty, the holiness, the love, the, the mercy of God? And so, like David, look to God. Look for God in nature. Study God in the scriptures. And let both means of revelation lift up your vision of God. Let both means of revelation cause you to do deeper self-examination. 
and let them draw you to the glory of the greatest revelation of all, the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. We give you praise, our God, for the greatest revelation of all, and that is Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to know God the Father. To know Jesus is to know all the qualities of our great God and what we are to be like. To know Jesus is to know God our Redeemer, to know our salvation. We give you praise for him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Stand and sing together. The law of the Lord is perfect. Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. May he give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Amen. Amen. 